Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I was talking with a a friend uh, recently about his spiritual life, and he was frustrated with it. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about, you know, what, what your prayer life is like. And he said, well, I'll give you an example. He said... This morning, I got on the exercise bike, and I started to ride as hard as I could, and I put on worship music, and I just, for a half an hour, I worshiped the Lord while I rode. And then he said, but think of how much better it would have been if I had been on my porch sitting still with my Bible. And I I thought for a moment, and I it occurred to me that my friend had a picture in his mind of what a godly man looked like. And it was sitting on the porch with a cup of coffee, his journal, and his Bible. It was not riding an exercise bike and praying. My friend had allowed legalism to creep in to his spiritual life. And we've talked about this when we studied the book of Galatians. If you were here last week, we we, we looked at it in the first three verses of chapter 3. Legalism is a deadly disease that creeps into the body of Christ, that that creeps into our hearts and can destroy us. And and Paul warns against it in the first three verses. He, He says, watch out for those who would mutilate the flesh. And it's a crude reference to a group that was coming into the church and demanding that in addition to believing in Christ, they would also be circumcised and keep the Jewish law. And so the gospel had been perverted to to say that the way that you are loved and forgiven and accepted by God is by trusting in Jesus and also doing certain things. Now one of the challenges when we read texts like these is they seem so remote from our daily lives and circumstances. But legalism is something that most Christians will struggle with 
in their life. And maybe we could reframe the definition. Technically, the definition is trying to be made righteous or right with God by adding a work to the saving work of Christ on the cross. That's the technical definition of legalism. But maybe we could reframe it a little bit to say, legalism is how I answer this question. I am loved, accepted, and forgiven by God when I... I have meaning and purpose in my life, and I am valued. I feel valued as a man. I feel valued as a woman when I... The right answer is... Sink into Christ. That's all I need to be loved and valued and accepted, to have purpose and meaning in my life. But most human beings add something to it. And just as for the first century Jew who was sincere, was trying to please God, it was very natural to say, sure, trust in Christ. Let me keep the law too. You and I subtly add little perversions that distort the gospel in our life. The Lord convicted me of of this this week. Last Saturday night, I told you about going to the two funerals, and I had two uh, brochures from the morning funeral and the afternoon funeral, and they were sitting on my desk, and I was praying before I I, uh, went to bed, and I looked at them, and I thought, you know, that's That's a powerful picture of a very sad thing in our community. So I took out my phone, took a picture of it, put it on Facebook, and I said, I went to two funerals today, and here's some things we can do to keep kids safe. Monday morning, a reporter from Channel 6 calls, says, I I saw your Facebook post. Can I come by? Can I interview you? She comes by. She interviews me. It starts spinning around, and you know what I find myself doing on Monday night? Checking to see how many likes it got. How many viewings it got? Now, why? Because of the well-being of the children in Center City, Knoxville? No. It's because there's a broken part of me that feels valued and loved when others love what I do. So what is it for you How do you complete the sentence, I feel loved and accepted and forgiven and that I have meaning and purpose in my life when I am thin, am effective at work, am connecting well with my child, am thriving in my marriage, am having good encounters with God, What is it for you? I suspect most of us have something. Well, how do you help someone move out of legalism? If if this is something that you're interested in, I mentioned this last week, I spent some time listening to a podcast on a website called (laughs) chiefsinner.org. And uh, whenever I recommend anything to you, it's not because I agree with everything on it, I haven't read everything on it, but I, I, I found some very interesting stories about people that have come out of bondage to a form of legalism and entered into grace. I I found them very compelling, very encouraging, and also a little bit too syrupy. They tended to have a, a real clean before and after. I was a legalist. I burned out. I met grace. And now I write books and do conferences. So some of them were a bit much. 
But I think the, the principle, the, the, one of the ways we help uh, one another move from legalism into grace is by telling our story about our own journey with it. And I think that's what Paul is doing in the verses that Austin read for us tonight. He begins by talking about what was probably the first half of his life, the life when he was a devout Jew, the life when he was utterly devoted to keeping Torah. And so he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was the command of scripture. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was one of the most favored tribes of Israel. Uh, He said, "I, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I'm a Pharisee. Pharisees not only kept Torah, they kept a bunch of other laws that were added to Torah. He says, I was so passionate about this that I even persecuted the church. And so he's describing the first half of his life, which was all about checking the right boxes off. And then he will say a few verses later, that's all rubbish to me now. The Greek word is actually yuckier than that. And you'd think he'd say, you know, that worked for a while, or that got me so far, or there was a lot about that that I appreciate, and then I learned more about knowing Christ. No, he says, actually, that whole approach to God harmed me. It was destructive. It was like manure. Now, what happened to to lift him out of legalism. Well, he had a spiritual crisis, and I'll just read part of it to you from Acts chapter 9. He was at the height of his powers, and he is heading to Damascus to persecute the church. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul, who becomes more known as Paul, has a spiritual crisis in which he encounters Christ personally and dramatically and moves from a spirituality of law to a knowledge of Christ. I don't know many people that have had an encounter with God like that. I know some who have. Maybe you have. But I do know many people who get to a point of crisis after years of trying to walk with God, of trying to obey, of, of confessing sins over and over again. They get to a point of disruption And a lot of times it's very disorienting. It's very painful. You might be going through a time like this tonight. 
where you, you are finding dark fantasies erupting out of the basement of your soul and spilling into your conscious life and it appalls you and sickens you and you can't believe you have thoughts like that. After all the quiet times you've had. Or you may find yourself in a moral failure and you're horrified. You cannot believe that you, you of all people, are acting that way. You might find yourself just exhausted. Just, just exhausted and worn out by trying to do all this. Sometimes I think our spiritual life sort of erupts in, in, in other ways, like emotional and physical ways. Physical way. So, your stomach might be a mess. Your back might be a mess. You might be having migraines. You might be struggling with anxiety or depression. I'm not saying all of those come from spiritual causes, but they can. They can come to you and suggest, hey, the way you're living life isn't working, is it? Maybe you and I have some work to do, the Lord might be saying. Well, Paul starts to unpack the second half of his life in the last part of Philippians 3. And he says it's ultimately about one thing. It's ultimately about knowing Jesus Christ. I count everything as lost now because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of everything, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The one thing that matters to him now is Jesus. That's the gold that he seeks. That's the center of his life. It's all that matters to him now. And then he starts to work out how that functions in his life. And, and he says, And I long to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's a lot of theology there. There's half the book of Romans there. And the key phrase, I think, is the righteousness that comes from God. The word righteousness means right relationship, right standing. And what Paul has discovered here is that the way that I can know God, the way that I can be approved of by God and loved by God and forgiven by God is a gift from God. We call it grace. And that's what he means by the righteousness from God. Now, I find that, that many Christians understand that that's how we get into the family of God. It's by grace. But sometimes we forget that that's also how we stay in the family of God. By grace. 
We believe the gospel is enough to forgive us our sins and make us somehow right before God and get us in. But then on a daily basis, as we struggle with sin and as we fail and as we fall and as we hide and as we project a false self to the world so no one knows the darkness of our hearts and as we suffer alone... And as we hold on to our secrets because we're so ashamed, and as we pull away from fellowship because we don't want to be known, we forget that the righteousness that forgives us is from God. It's all of grace. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. I was working on this today and someone in another place in the world that I love came to mind and I worry about him and I send him email. I don't see him very much anymore. And he always writes back, I'm working so hard on getting this right. And I admire that about him. He's a very hardworking man. But today I wrote back and I said, I worry that you don't understand grace. That you don't understand the strange world of the kingdom of God where the ultimate healing and the things our heart wants the most don't happen because you work for them. They happen because of grace. Where do you need grace tonight, beloved? I know, you get it. You were saved by grace. I'm not talking about that tonight. Where do you need the righteousness that's from God? You do some things maybe over break that you're disappointed in yourself with. Maybe you didn't do some things over break that you wanted to do. Maybe you're even believing some things that you kind of don't want to believe right now. Grace is for you now, just as it was in the day of your salvation. And Paul says that his goal in life is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. There's so much in that phrase. I want to read it one more time. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, being like him in his death. What I want to just sit with for a moment is this idea that knowing God and knowing the power of God is related to suffering with God. 
There's something in there that's worth pondering. I, I think for, for many years I thought that the more I grew in God, the stronger and stronger I would feel in God. And that the power of the resurrection, that's a lot of power, right? If we're looking at spiritual voltage, that's way up there, right? Blew open the tomb, brought Jesus back to life, saved the world. That's a lot of power. And if that power is coursing through my body, that tomb-shattering, Easter morning, resurrection power is, is pulsating through your body and my body, why am I not more aware of it? And here's, here's what I'm beginning to wonder, and you all can ponder this yourself. It's maybe the longer you walk with God, and the more you suffer in life, the weaker you become, the more his power flows through you. And you don't even know it. I'm thinking about a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul seems to be talking about that. I think it's 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Could he be saying that as we turn our face towards Christ, as we suffer with the things that life brings us, and as we suffer in trying to put away sin, that is suffering, right? There's a reason why we often don't deal with sin. It's because it's suffering. It's hard to put away sin. It is hard to deal with your junk. It's hard to look at the dark side of your heart. It's hard to press into relationships. It's easier not to. If you want to follow Christ, you'll suffer. Growth requires suffering. But as you suffer... As you just become weaker, as all that confidence you once had just sort of drains away and all you've got left is Christ, could that be when the power of the resurrection flows the most mightily through you? When I think of a wise old man, older man, or a wise older woman, when I think of an older saint who just sort of radiates the love and life of Christ, I don't think a lot about their physical powers. As a matter of fact, by the time they get to that point in life, 
the, the life has rubbed off a lot of that physical power. They've suffered. But now the life of Christ seeps out of the cracks of their brokenness. When I think of a pathetic old man, can we talk about that? We all know him. Maybe you had Christmas with him. Um, <laughs> nervous laughter in row eight. <laughs> I, I, I think of the, the man who's terrified of aging, who focuses everything he can on preserving some illusion of being young, shipwrecks relationships, pays no attention to his soul, dies lonely and tanned. You know him, right? I don't want to be that. I think there's a relationship between suffering, the knowledge of God, and the power of the resurrection. Well, Paul ends. He's sitting in jail. He is going to be martyred a few miles away. He's living in the shadow of his own mortality, and his thoughts turn to this as he's ending his story about this new way of walking with Christ. And He says that, by any means possible, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. What does he mean? I think what he means is when I was under the law, I never really knew where I stood. I wasn't really sure whether I'd be resurrected or not. But now that I am found in Christ and I have the righteousness that's from God, life after death is just continuing a relationship. How could I not have it? A few years ago, some pollsters surveyed a bunch of Christians and asked, uh, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And many of them said, I hope. And then the pollster said, why do you think you might go to heaven when you die if you do? And they said, well, I served in Sunday school and I gave and was kind to the poor and I worked hard on my marriage. Those are good things, right? Bad answer. Bad answer. The only answer is Christ. And I I think the litmus test of whether or not you've started to move from legalism into grace is whether or not you know that. If for some reason you still think that whether or not you'll spend eternity in a relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing him ever and ever more intimately, depends on as one British writer said, what happened between the stirrup and the ground on your last day when you fell from the horse. You don't understand grace, beloved. It's Christ. 
It's a gift. You can only receive it.